Hey everyone, this is Chris Haddon with Hard Money Bankers here with another awesome expert interview. Today we have Mike McDevitt, the CEO of Terra's Kitchen, the former CEO of Metafast. Mike, thank you for being with us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Definitely, definitely. Thanks for taking the time. I know your calendar stays pretty full, so appreciate you fitting us in. Um, all right, we're going to do some cool stuff. We're going to run through the, the whole business history, anything that... Um, our viewers will want to see cool. and talk about, and we might even be able to slide in a couple questions along the way, um, meaning you know people who are watching and have heard about this interview coming up and have already thrown in a couple questions. So we're going to keep it moving, fit in everything we can. Um, if you don't mind, could you just give us a little background on yourself, personal, where you came from, all of that? Yeah, sure, man. So uh, I started my business career up in New York City. I was an analyst for Blackstone, uh, joined Blackstone right out of college. So I jumped right from school down at James Madison up to New York for Blackstone. I was there roughly a little, I think, over two and a half years or so. And uh, funny as life would have it, I went down to my father's retirement dinner uh, from the FBI, 35 years in the FBI, mainly undercover. Mm -hmm. The fellow sitting next to me at his retirement dinner had just taken over this company called Metafast, uh, which was a small little $1 million business up in Maryland. And uh, for three hours during that dinner, he pitched me on trying to get me to leave Blackstone, where I was very happy in my money lifestyle, to come down and join the Metafast team in Baltimore. So, uh, you know, what started really as a favor to my father for his friend, I uh, walked into the Metafast facilities back in, in 2002. And uh, right away, what I kind of saw was an infrastructure that had huge capability that wasn't being fully utilized and uh, an asset that was being sold through a distribution channel that was a little bit backdated, meaning that was being sold wholesale to doctors to resell to patients. Uh, so we had this concept of, hey, let's take it and put it right online and let's go with e-commerce to become the new engine for this business model to work. So I uh, took over Metafast, I uh, was CEO there um, and CFO there for about eight years. Uh, in that time frame, we were able to grow that business from about a million bucks to I think about 365 million or so when I left. Uh, public entities, so I was able to take that onto the New York Stock Exchange and had a lot of fun doing it. Um, we were able to be awarded as the number one stock of the decade back from 2000 to 2010 with a 16,000% uh, return, uh, which our investors were pretty happy with over that time frame I was there. Mm -hmm. I was able to be named number one growth company in America by Forbes magazine. Uh, we were in the top five three times and named NAB the number one spot, I think it was 2008. I believe, maybe it was 2009. Uh, left Metafast back in 2012 after just a great ride. And uh, in order to find out what I really wanted to do next, uh, I knew I wanted to be an investor. I knew I wanted to be an advisor for a period of time. So I went down to Washington, D.C., which had a loophole in Washington, D.C. that allowed me as a non-attorney to open up a law firm. And the, uh, the concept of that law firm was that we wanted to create an environment that brought the best attorneys in the world under this roof where they had a non-attorney running the ship, so it was more of a culturally driven piece. We were gonna become the GCs, the general counsels, of these small growth companies that I was investing in. Uh, so we were able to provide them just top tier legal support, as well as kind of get my uh, you know, under the hood check for the company to make sure they were doing what I thought they needed to be doing from an investment. And during that time at Tandem is when I kind of uh, came across two different things. First being from the business side, I came across the opportunity of meeting a company out in California in the fresh food space. Now, they were a billion-dollar juggernaut. They were producing produce and selling to all the grocery stores. And at the same time, my wife and I just found out we were going to become parents. Uh, 
Uh, so after the exciting conversation on the parent side about with my wife and I, I get a little nervous as well because it's a little scary kind of time frame. I go and I call my mom and I'm like, hey, mom, give me a little advice. How do I not mess this whole thing up? And uh, she said something that kind of was the origin of what I'm doing now at Tara's Kitchen. She said, you know, Mike, there's no one way to raise your kid. But one thing we did as a family every day, no matter what, six o'clock came, we sat around the table, we had dinner as a family. Right. And uh, the fact that I was not doing that at this time because I'm so busy my lifestyle kind of led me to search for something that would allow me to have the ability to have dinner with my family on a regular basis. And that was the origin that I created Terrace Kitchen for, really to, the purpose of our business today is to help people by making it convenient to have them sit around the table and connect over a home-cooked meal. So from private equity to the nutrition and weight loss space to the legal space to now in the the connecting people space. <laughs> yeah, um, I was just gonna say, you, you rolled through a, a number of different businesses and business models in what, probably about 15 years? <laughs> in that, uh, yeah, all right, so we're, we're gonna dive in um, to some more specific stuff because I was oh. making some notes about um, a couple of interesting things that I wanna ask you about um, backing up a little bit. So what was it like going from a private equity giant like Blackstone to a, a completely different model startup $1 million company and you were how old, maybe 25 or so? 23. 23. How, how was that? How does that work? You know, I think when I look back at how was it? One, it was a bit of a shock, a culture shock, mm -hmm. right? To go from the most buttoned up environment in the world, which is private equity in New York City back in the early 2000s, to that of a basically a, a building where there was nobody in it, in Owings Mills, Maryland, outside of Baltimore, okay. with really no rules on what you could or could not do. So uh, culture shock for sure, right? And then I think the, the beauty was, the reality as we came across to realize very quickly was that there was really no culture, so it was ours to create. Huh. And the the ability to kind of create something from scratch is just, while it can be overwhelming because it's a white sheet of paper, uh, really, when you're that small, there's no risk. There's no real wrong you can do. So it was kind of exciting as well. So here we are with a clean sheet of paper. What do we want to make it? And we were able to sit down with a very small group of people and sit around a table and say, hey, this is what we want to do, and we can because it's ours. So uh, let's go out and do that. Um, from the canvas. age, yeah. from the age side of it, I think I was lucky in that nobody expected me to know anything. So I could have taken that one of two ways. I could have taken that where, you know, the ego could come into play and I could have to put up a front like I knew in order to make people try to convince people I fit. But uh, whether it was from luck or whether it was from wisdom, I, I don't know. But I went the exact opposite way and I just kind of made it very clear. Hey, look, I don't know. So we're gonna find out together. So it was a very collaborative environment just by the nature of me not having the experience of having done it before. And now uh, that really worked out well for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure it has. Um, how many people were at um, MetaFast when you started? Uh, when I started, there were 12. 12 people. And when I left, there were 1,200. 1,200, yeah, so some of the growth over that 10 year period is just, just crazy. Um, okay, early days there, do you remember one of the first like one or two things that you did like, okay, day one, we got to do this, we got to do that. Do you remember anything in particular that stands out? Yeah, I mean, uh, Metafast was a different business model than I'm in now because it was totally vertically integrated. Even though we were very small, we did every piece of the entire function of the product. We you, manufactured, you manufactured the product. your own stuff, you sold your own stuff, it was all, exactly. okay, got it. It's all from soup to nuts, we did the entire thing. We procured it, we manufactured it, we stored it, we pick-packed it, we marketed it, we shipped it. Um, so really, and that, it was a new world for me. I'm not an operations person, I was a finance person by, by nature, so mm -hmm. 
first thing I did was I went and I worked in every department in the company. Um, just kind of sat with and I picked, I went on the line and I picked on the line. I went into procurement and I actually bought products. So I wanted to learn it. So I just went in there and kind of sat with the people. And here's the kind of interesting situation where you got this guy who's in procurement who all of a sudden the CEO of the company is coming and sitting next to him. And he's like, hey, I'm, I want to learn from you what it is you do. Uh, and because I was so young, I don't think it was an intimidating aspect where they weren't really trying to show off. They were really just having fun, showing me and taking pride in, hey, this is what I do. And so understanding every different piece of my work in it was the, the first step I did when I got there. Yeah, that's smart. That's smart. Um, so on the road from a million to $365 million in revenue, where in there did the company go public? The company was public when I got there on the pink sheets. Uh, we had been kicked off of every market. So we went on the American Stock Exchange in, I think it was around 2004. So about two years after I got there, we were able to get the sales up to the point where we were accepted back on the American Stock Exchange. And then in, I think it was 2007, we made the jump from the Amex to the New York Stock Exchange. Okay. So I got to ring two bells, which was kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, okay, I guess that was the, the right way to go, being a publicly traded company partially because it, it, it already was when you got there. I Otherwise, was, you could have yeah. seen that thing growing as a private company for a while in there in a different circumstance, huh? That business model was one that could have worked very well as a private model because of the margins we had. It was a cash flow business. Uh, very different than a lot of the reasons people go public today, which is the need for capital um, and the lack of having actual profitability. Um, so yeah, we could have gone either way. I was dealt a hand when I got there that we were already public. And uh, we were having some growth rates that allowed us to see some multiples that allowed us to benefit from being public, which in essence, I think it was in 2005, I went out and did a pipe deal, a uh, private investment in a public entity that allowed us to raise, even though we'd already been public, we were able to raise capital even uh, I'm doing a pipe deal. Interesting. Um, cool. Yeah. I'm <clears throat> jotting down a couple more things I might circle back on in a little bit, uh, but yeah. let's, let's move on for a sec. Going to... All right, that was one of the questions I was definitely going to ask you because I did know about the law firm that you had started in D.C. And the first thing I would say to myself is, why the hell does McDevitt want a law firm? <laughs> um, and, and you, and you kind of answered that um, for two reasons. One, you're right, D.C. is a loophole. And I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing D.C. is a loophole because of lobbyists and other people needing to be partners in law firms? Correct. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's really the, the concern in why non-attorneys are not allowed to own law firms in the United States. It's called the fear of, fear of Sears, where they believe that if a non-attorney has the right to have authority over attorneys, he's going to force the attorneys to go against their ethics. Hmm. Uh, the irony there about some of the attorneys I've met across the way is a whole different story, but it's kind of Fair old enough. thinking that uh, we've just stuck with here in the United States. So. Um, independence is very important from the legal world. Yeah, for sure. And and the other thing that you mentioned related to that is that that tied into what you wanted to do as an investor and an advisor. And you could come into companies that you might be otherwise participating in, in those ways, and also be a GC. That part I definitely didn't know. Correct. And uh, the third leg of that stool was that, you know, I had been, I'd worked with a lot of attorneys over my day, a lot of different types of attorneys. And I was always frustrated by the separation from the mindset of the attorney to the mindset of the business they were representing. They came in with no as their lead answer of telling me why I could not do things. And I was always intrigued by that. So I wanted to really kind of create an atmosphere where the attorneys would have the ability to better understand the business 
And that was one of my goals. When they would bring on a client, I would work with the attorney to get to know the client to a degree that when we would leave and go back to the tandem offices inside our four walls, I was representing the client even when the attorney was not present with the client because I got how they think. So kind of flipping and making the attorneys appreciate the mindset of a business was a, was a strong goal for me. Uh, that, that's a tough, it's, it's a tough thing to overcome when somebody's so deep into that mindset at first. So it's, it's an audacious goal. I wouldn't say I was totally successful, but I think we made some dents. Yeah, for sure. No, that, that's a good point that you bring up. And it's something that Jason and I, my business partner here, have discussed a few times is that attorneys and, and CPAs both, I've found that the best partners for me are people who I can speak business to. I don't have to translate from business into legal or translate from business into accounting because there's always going to be a disconnect. When we can speak the same language, it, it makes for a better working relationship and a, you know probably better results. For sure. Yeah. I've got all the respect. When that's why you see a lot of attorneys nowadays going out and getting that MBA and the JD, uh, which I got a lot of respect for, but that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of school. <laughs> that is a lot of school for sure. Um, okay. Yeah, let's, let's move on to Tara's Kitchen a little bit. Um, cool. Tara's Kitchen, in case people have not come across it is a, how do you describe it best, a food delivery service? Yeah, I mean, we're a fresh food business through e-com that delivers direct to your door, primarily focused on the meal kit space. So we provide you all the ingredients to make the end meal of which you get to choose. So we kind of take out the uh, the middleman of the grocery store. Yeah, and which is a obviously a gigantic market and the food delivery has only a tiny, tiny little fraction of it. Is that right? It is, man. It was one of the things that kind of shocked me. Uh, when I learned about the retail grocery store, retail grocery is roughly a $650 billion juggernaut that has not been touched by e-com yet to this day. Uh, so here sits the last fat and happy retail world that has not turned into the circuit cities of the world. Hmm. And uh, it got me kind of excited because that was because of the reason of technology was not there to allow consumers the confidence for fresh food to ship through the things such as UPS and FedEx. And really just in the last four years, you've seen that technology come into play, whether it's from the last mile distributors or whether it's from the technology you're shipping the food in, it's now here to stay. And we've seen it grow from what was zero four years ago to roughly about a $4 billion market today. And it's anticipated to go from $4 billion to most likely over $20 billion in the next 10 years. So uh, I sometimes timing is everything. And I'll take getting into a business that has that kind of tailwind any day, uh, just because you can see a lot of people be average and still see growth. Yeah, I mean, even with huge growth like that from $4 billion to $20 billion, it's still only a tiny little piece of the, the whole, you know, uh, grocery and food buying world. So much more to do. So much more to do. Um, okay, L let's talk about your team as Terrace Kitchen. I mean, you've had uh, some people who have been with you for a while, and you're able to kind of, I don't know, get the band back together, whatever you want to say. I'm sure some people have followed you along since the beginning. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the most honoring things that someone can do with you, right? Make this decision to kind of continue working with you, even though the last paths have kind of stopped. So the team here at Terrace Kitchen is mainly comprised of the C-suite that was with me back at Metafest. Uh, so we got our C, myself, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, the CMO, the CNO. Uh, and we've also then brought on board a new technology individual, which we did not have. Uh, we didn't bring that piece over from Metafest and a new culinary person. So that kind of leads the executive team over here, my, my former C-suite with technology and food. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Now, what would you say Tara's Kitchen is trying to do different and better than competitors? So first and foremost, when I first learned of this desire to want to you know, have a better chance of having dinner at home, I became a consumer of who are now looked at as my kind of direct competition, the, uh, the Blue Aprons and the Hello Fresh of the world. And I, I really did. I liked what they were doing. 
I just didn't love it per se because there were certain things that I thought could be done better for how I chose to eat. And I'm just a customer of one, so I don't speak for all. But the first thing foremost was the just the convenience factor of it. While it was convenient to have it delivered to my home, it was still taking me well over an hour to make the meal. And that was because of the classic 80-20 concept in the world of cooking. 80% of that cooking time is usually in the preparation time, the sous chef work. Mm. And you know that's something that was really kind of frustrating to me. Number two was the world of variety. I mean, I'm from the world of health and wellness, and that's kind of how I choose to eat. Uh, because of the business models, the infrastructures these other companies have built, they have a very limited variety on a daily basis. You got maybe five to seven different meals available at any given time. And it was tough to find the right meals that fit how I wanted to eat out of those five to seven. And the third thing that kind of angst me was just the amount of waste affiliated with the business model. I'm already an Amazon Prime junkie, fully admit that. Having an additional 15 ice packs, another brown box, and a bunch of butcher paper come on a weekly basis was a bit tough on me to take out the recycling bin every Tuesday. Uh, so I sought to create a business in Terrace Kitchen that answered the mail from the convenience, from the variety, and from the eco-friendly aspects of it. And uh, we've been able to do that by one, shipping in a container that allows us to ship pre-cut ingredients. So that is something that we do different than any other person in the space. Pre-cut vegetables is the fastest growing industry, is the fastest growing skew in the grocery stores because we wow. just don't have time right now. Sure. So we've been able to cook, we've been able to cut our average cook time from what is an hour from the competitors to roughly about 25 minutes with our with our product. Um, because of our partnerships across the world of produce, uh, we've been able to offer at a given time, we always have at least 55 different meals on our website. So we're doing about 10X the average number from the competitors as far as variety. And then the vessel that we ship you the product in, it is a reusable vessel. So it's like the, the modern day milkman. We drop it off on your doorstep, you empty it and put it in the fridge, you put the vessel back on the doorstep, we pick it up and use that vessel well over 100 times. So convenience, variety, and waste were able to be answered, which is kind of what made us, I think, a bit of a differentiation from a what we do. And then from a why we do it, I look at the other companies, and I do love these other companies, I think they do great work, they're more about the cooking experience, whereas Terrace Kitchen is trying to minimize the cook experience but still have it. We're about the table experience. We want people to sit around that table and spend as much time connecting and communicating and kind of just taking a pause from their wild everyday life. So we look at it kind of, again, 80-20, 20% of the cook time, 80% of the enjoyment time around the table. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That customers of some of the competitors might be more into that cooking experience and they get some of that pleasure there, whereas Terrace Kitchen is more focused on the eating. Um, exactly. That said, has anyone tried to copy any of your things yet? Uh, we see a lot of attempted to copy as far as from a messaging standpoint from the competitors. Um, when I, I love being copied, right? It's sure. flattering in a sense. But sure. we see them focusing a lot on trying to cut their cook times down now, uh, which I'm assuming is from both feedback from their consumer base as well as maybe seeing the success we're having. Uh, we see a lot of that. And I did just hear a advertisement for one of my competitors on, I think it was Spotify um, earlier this week that they changed their message to be about how insert company name here is really about helping to connect families around the table. And uh, I kind of chuckled when I heard it. I was like, oh, that's new. That's different. Uh, I'm honored. You know? Yeah. I mean, it means people are paying attention to you. So yeah. If they keep doing it on their advertising dollars, it must mean it's working. So then I'll keep doing it too. I'll let them kind of lead the way. Very cool. Um, okay. What do you see for the next year in Terrace Kitchen? I mean, growth right now is what we're really trying to uh, get our hands around. I mean, we're seeing growth rates at about 25% month over month right now. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it can be uh, when the numbers start getting big, that starts getting pretty powerful. Um, so maintaining our 
SLAs and our promises to the consumer from a quality standpoint is a key focus, improving, of course, but making sure that we can maintain during these types of growth rates. Uh, so we see a lot also from getting into new types of initiatives at Terrace Kitchen, which is where I can be dangerous as a CEO is maintaining focus on something that is growing so well, while I can be very easily tempted into new and exciting kind of opportunities because they're there. Uh, and I'm the kind of person being an innovator that I am, I, I want to take them, but don't forget about what we are and what we do and you know the core pillars of the business as well. So what I see over the next year is a lot of growth. How we're going to do that is focus and continuing to do what we do better. Very cool. Yeah, we will definitely be watching everything that goes on at TK for sure. And um, switching gears for a second. Now, you've had a pretty good run at your previous ventures and at your current one. What would you say, in your opinion, makes you good at what you do? What makes me good at what I do? Um, These are the curveballs I was talking about. This I is dig them, yeah. Honestly, I mean, I don't think that I'm that good at what I do, uh, which makes me hungry to constantly get better at what I do. Uh, I got some clues in my life that make me kind of believe that maybe I'm pretty good. I got people following me where I go. We got some growth coming from the companies I'm affiliated with. But I really do feel every day I wake up kind of feeling like I just, I'm, I'm nowhere near where I need to be in order to do what I want to do. So I'm just constantly curious on how I can get better at what it is I'm doing. Um, whether it's the hard assets, which is a lot less of the hard assets now, more than it is the soft assets. Well, it's more mindset than it is skill set. Uh, for me nowadays, but uh, I guess that might be what makes me good at what I do is that I don't think I'm good at what I do. That sounds a lot like a, a book by a Zen guy named Suzuki called Beginner's Mind. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but the yeah. idea of Beginner's Mind is just that. As soon as you think you're an expert, as soon as you think you're awesome, then you stop growing. You're like, I got it, I'm there. <laughs> and if you all, if you get up every day thinking you're a beginner, then it's the opposite. It's like I have to learn every day. I have to get better. I love that, man. I think in my world, and we use this a lot in my companies, that there are learners and there are knowers. And what I'm looking for is learners because one can't learn what one thinks he knows. So come into every meeting it, with the desire to say you don't know when we're here to learn. Don't come in this meeting trying to show me how much you know. So Very cool. Very cool. Um, next question ties into that a little bit. What's one or two things specifically that you'd like to get better at? Oh man, um, situational awareness is something that I'm constantly really striving to get better at uh, by setting any, I, sometimes I set, set in my calendar reminders to just pop up and just say aware, anything like little like that. Cause it's, I find myself often drifting back to my natural state of curiosity and solving problems. That's what I love to do. And the downside of that is it can pull me into solving problems that aren't my problems to solve. So by kind of constantly becoming aware and saying, okay, whose job am I doing right now? Mm. And making sure that I can then pass that job back onto the person who's responsible and accountable for it. Because rest assured, if the CEO walks in the office of somebody else and offers to take something off your plate, they will happily give it to you to take off their plate. So. The awareness to make sure that I'm doing the best and most powerful use of what my time should be doing at that point and not being pulled into the problem solving of the other folks in the organization. That's something I really need to get better at. That's interesting. Situational awareness in that that sort of way. I haven't heard it described. What? How might you go about that? How might you go about keeping yourself more disciplined in that way? I mean, the irony about that stuff is that you know what you should do 
It's the ability to stop the automated thought process that you're going through to assess, is this the right thing you should be doing? And it's a very quick answer. It's not hard to know if you're doing the right thing or not. It's really the challenge is just to make take that pause to know that you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, so how do I go about it? There's little tricks, tips and tricks. Like I really do on my, if you look at my outlook, 15 times throughout the course of the day, it'll just say aware, which will just pop me up. And it's kind of my cheat to be like, oh, sh- Oh, doing something I should not be doing. Good one. Uh, and you got to be careful to become numb to it. So I often change the word just so it keeps me intrigued of what the word is going to be. So it doesn't become just an automatic, you know, dismiss. Uh, that is something I do. Um, I mean, I'm not going to push too many things that I'm sure people already know about today. But I mean, I'm a big fan of meditation, uh, but from the long form meditation as well as the short form meditation throughout the course of the day. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple little things right there. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is your meditation yeah. practice like? I'm um, a morning and then throughout the course of the day. So in the morning, it is usually a 20-minute session. Uh, I, I, I say I want to do it as soon as I get up, but what I have found is that I'm better post-workout in the morning in the sauna. So I am a workout meditate in the sauna kind of junkie uh that is a six day a week minimum for me uh try to get in there for that seventh day as well depends on the one-year-old schedule sometimes on the weekend but uh yeah and it'll depend upon i mean i've used different things like uh, the headspace app or different kind of guided meditations Uh, there's a lot of great podcasts out there i think tara brock is one that does a great guided meditation uh so i need the help to get through it i'm not i i'm not good at a quiet meditation by myself yet i'm not there yet uh, so I do prefer a guided sense, uh, guided, you know, someone to help me through the process. Yeah, I, I've used one myself called a brainwave. It's not guided, but it does some cool stuff with brainwaves like alpha, theta, beta, that thing, and also with like an ambiance add-in. Interesting. Yeah, that is, uh, I've had that one on my phone, and actually I made a smart move and I moved it from my phone to my iPad where no text messages come or no calls ah. come. Yeah. That is the worst, man. When you get a call during your guided meditation. <laughs> I moved it to the iPad. It's the best thing I ever did. That is smart because I, I literally get angry at the person who's calling me and it's definitely not their fault. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's supposed to be – that's kind of the opposite of the goal. So, it is. It's complete opposite, yes. Um, I also noted what you said about doing it post-workout because I've found that – and I've been pretty good on my morning routine the past couple weeks, uh, which starts with kettlebell swings because I know if I do that, I'll get into the meditation. But if I if I don't do that, the meditation's hit or miss. I don't know why. I don't know why. I, I, like, I, I don't know the science behind it, but I find the same. It's I, I go and I try to do the hardest the hardest physical thing first, because then I know everything else for the day is going to really be kind of downhill for me, which I enjoy. So to your point, yeah, if I got something really hard, I know I got to do that day. If I got a meeting where you know it's going to be a very difficult message to deliver. I go extra hard in the morning so that it makes that seem just like a, a cakewalk in a sense. Yeah. It's like I, I was just doing squats. That was much harder than whatever I have to do now. <laughs> For sure. I can definitely relate to that. Um, okay. Another curveball for you. And this is always a funky one for entrepreneurs. What does the word retirement mean to you? Well, that's something that I failed at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you tried and it didn't work. Yeah, I tried that. That did not work. Um you know, I look at someone like my dad, right, who is by far one of my, my heroes in life without question. Mm-hmm. And 35 years, FBI just did some amazing things. And then he was going to, I was trying to get him to retire. So I'm trying to force him to do this retirement. I think that's what you're supposed to do. And I, I see him. He's now, was it, 15 years since he's retired from the FBI, still working as hard as he did in the FBI. And for the longest time, 
I thought it was just stupid. I was like, what are you doing? You could be doing nothing. And now that I've gotten older, now that I've gotten a little bit wiser, uh, I realized that you have to have a purpose in life. Whatever that purpose is, you have to have drive, you have to have passion. And the word retirement, I don't really have an exact definition for it, because to me it gives this image of beach and a chair and a you know pina colada. I never desire that. I like those breaks. I like you know those short two to four week kind of, I guess, mini retirements in a sense to clear the head. But I hope to God that I am as passionate about it, something that I am right now, like Terrace Kitchen, for the rest of my life, whatever that might be. If it's being a stay-at-home dad, that's, that's a job. That's not retirement, that's a job. But it's whatever it is that fills your passion, make sure you have something like that for it. Because uh, it scares me to think what life would be like if I did not have that. I would have a massive void and we would have a very boring conversation. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And most people who end up, you know, running companies like us, uh, ha- have the same sort of personality and mindset that you need something to to work towards every day. You need something to push, and it doesn't have to be business. Like you said, it could be it could be something else. It could be, be you know golf, or it could be travel, or it could be family stuff, um, for sure. But the a common answer to that question is like retirement freaks me out. Um, <laughs> at some point, do I really have to sit around and do nothing? Um, maybe I even feel retired now because I, I basically do what I would do were I quote unquote retired, like do some sure. business, work out a lot, play some golf, like you do a little traveling. It's kind of it's kind of like what we all do now. That is, yeah. I mean, we're living that life now. It's something that I do hope I get better at in my lifetime, and I, I hope to have the time to work into it. I would love right now. My passion is seems to be drawn into the growth of these entities that are the businesses that I get involved in. And I, and I love it. Believe me, it's a great, I'm blessed to have this opportunity. I, I desire to have my passion towards things that are more relevant to my personal life as opposed to my, my work life and finding that, that balance between those two. And I really think that I'm going to be have that opportunity as children kind of continue to grow up in my lifestyle. So that's something I'm, maybe that's what retirement could be for me when I have that ability to flip my passion from that of the businesses that I'm growing to the perhaps grandkids one day that that is what I want to put my time and effort into. Uh, still as passionate, but perhaps of a different genre of passion. Yeah, just a little pivot in that same yeah. kind of drive. There you go. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very good stuff. And you've done some awesome things so far. We're definitely looking forward to seeing the growth of your companies and everything that, that happens from here. I definitely do appreciate you taking the time. I know your schedule stays plenty busy. Um, one last thing for the people watching or listening today, people who are early on in their entrepreneurial journey or maybe you're thinking about starting a company, what, what's one piece of advice you would give to people earlier in their career who want to do what you do? Um, two quick things that come to mind. Um, one, the timing is never going to be perfect. Um, so don't wait for that perfect timing. There's always going to be something that you can say when this happens is when I'm going to make that jump. Those things, those days never come. Um, two, it seems to be often that it's the innovators of the world, those who like creating things and those who like solving problems that like, that have the ideas that can become the greatest potential businesses and the greatest potential products, yet they're never satisfied with where that product is, which causes it to never get to where it should go because it never even starts. So accept 
the products early on, except something to get version one out into the marketplace before you put too much time, money, effort, and thought into it, see if anybody else even wants this thing that you want to put out there. Don't get too lost, and sometimes maybe because you're just scared that you don't want to put the product out there because you're showing your, you know, your 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 passion is that maybe you're not going to be that good. But the day is never going to be perfect, and just get something out there because it's a lot easier to learn from having something bad about what was bad about it to then make it good than it is to try to kind of perfect in your own world without any outside feedback. So, just I guess both of those are things saying jump. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you you see that in your day to day that there's never a perfect time to start X project, right? <laughs> I mean, we talk about that frequently. And also, yeah, the idea of a, a, what do they call it? Minimum viable product MVP is what they say. Your first launch thing, because it's very true that perfectionists in entrepreneurs, like the perfectionism and entrepreneurship kind of flies in the face of one another. They don't go well together. (laughs) They do not. Um, So people should definitely take note of that, because if you find yourself being a super full on perfectionist, and a lot of people admit that they are, Running a company is going to be tough. There's just too many things to do. Very true. Very true. Anyway, Mike McDevitt, CEO of Terra's Kitchen. Again, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much, man. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. We'll do it again sometime. I look forward to it. Have a good one. Take care.